Hello and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, good to be back with you. Excuse you and your cough. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find us online and on social media? Always a pleasure to be here with you. Yes, uh, you can find us, of course, online on our main hosting site, which is Anchor FM, which shares out over uh, iTunes. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a number of other platforms and on social media on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook. Uh, we do check those messages a lot and we try to get the, uh, we try to make this a dialogue. We've had, we've received a number of questions and conversations from people and it's, it's added greatly, added a lot of value to the show. So we're very appreciative of that. And of course, we are into week two uh, at the time of this recording anyway of offering our On the Battlefields shorts, so uh, OTB shorts. So, of course, while this is a biweekly podcast, uh, on the non-podcast weeks, we'll be putting up the OTB shorts that will be uh, brief videos of either Father Joseph or myself, planned to be about five, ten minutes, over YouTube and uh, Rumble, and then shared out over social media and the audio only on Anchor FM. So there will be uh, brief little snippets, and they are a good bit different from uh, from this podcast. So they're, they're well, they're in the same vein, they're in the same spirit, but it's uh, check them out because they are their own animal, and they're also a lot of fun. So. Uh, do check out the OTB shorts on the YouTube and Rumble, as well as the audio on Anchor FM, and of course, our podcast on the usual schedule. Yeah, the, the on the battlefield shorts. I'm intending to have some fun with that. It's going to be an opportunity for Father Michael and for me to show you into our own lives. You know, like Father Michael's recorded at at the parish that he's serving at. I recorded in my office. I might take you outside to. Kind of give you a view of what Cheyenne looks like, and just have an opportunity to to let people into our lives uh, individually and more visually. It's 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 going to be fun. I'm looking forward to that. One one thing that I really am looking forward to about them, and uh, and we haven't discussed this well, uh, but one thing that I'm really looking forward to about that is I would very much like to see us move. You know, do take the 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 style the things we're talking about and do some like do some retreats do some talks uh offer this you know in some degree live and i, I think the the otb shorts are they're actually a good platform to that because you kind of get to see us sort of as individuals sort of like our little individual musings that are going on around everything else we're doing father joseph is absolutely right uh, getting to see where we are. I think it's, you just put a face with the voice. And uh, I'm hoping that it helps grow our presence with this because since we've started, uh, I have really enjoyed doing this and uh, I would love to see it get bigger than it uh, than it is and see uh, where it goes. Amen. So today we are uh, right around uh, the middle of September and the celebration of the universal exaltation of the most holy cross of Jesus Christ and that not on the old calendar you might but the new but the new but the new and we will end that conversation right there uh, so we are going to talk about the cross of of our lord and working through the vespers and the orthros and the liturgy of the of the most holy cross it was very striking to me the language that the church uses to to describe the reality of the cross. And one of my favorite things in the church is all the turns of phrase that the hymnographers used. Like, for example, in this context, one of the hymnographers alludes to the tree of life in Eden and then fast forwards several thousand years to the tree of life being the cross, you know, it's like, so this, this tree that was intended to offer life in the garden was misused and death came through it. Yet on a dead tree being the cross, the author of life hung 
and offered life to humanity. So this wonderful, uh, beautiful, orthodox turn of phrase to, to bring this reality and unveil it, right? This apocalypse, this revealing of a deep truth that, that God has given to man, that, that he has intended for us to be saved and for us to be reunited to him uh, as, as his image bearers by means of something that is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, namely his cross. Well, and it, we have this sense, sorry, we have, we, have, we have a sense within Scripture that there's something much more than just, um, you know, the, the bare bones historical event, this happened on this date in this place, but that you're looking at, uh, but that you're looking at uh, what we, to use a technical term, is an eschatological reality. I mentioned this, I think, in our last, uh, our last recording, is that you have this, this idea that there are these great eternal events, you know, these eschatological events, these events that are, for lack of, I mean, events probably not even the right word, but these mysteries into eternity that then break through into human history at different points is not necessarily when they start and finish. Uh, and the cross is one of those. And that's not Father Michael. According to John's apocalypse, he says that, um, you know, that Christ is the Lamb of God who is slain before the foundation of the world. That breaks into human history at the cross. Okay. But 33 AD during the Roman Empire isn't before the foundation of the world, as we said. So that means its character and the character of what we're looking at and, and the character of what it's involving are much bigger than just the bare bones of you have, um, you know, something happening to the God-man on, or something happening with the God-man um, uh, on a given hill, at a given point in time in the Roman Empire. Now, I want to, before we go on, I want to correct the tendency that exists in our modern age. When I say more than it doesn't cancel the other elements we have this tendency this this awful tendency as americans that if i say yeah but there's more to the story um our knee-jerk response our cultural response to say okay then all the other stuff doesn't count all the other stuff isn't real well that's not the real stuff it's really this over here and then we can dispose of that over there in a minimalistic fashion that's not true so while the eschatological reality from which every implication of the cross um, has its value in that eternal sense. The historical element that doesn't exhaust that mystery is still true and valid. You still have the God-man being nailed to the cross on uh, uh, on Calvary in you know in 33 AD during the Roman Empire. That's that's all true. That's there, but it's broader. So it's a both and. So as we talk about this, I, I want. I, I want people to keep the both and in mind so that you're not writing in and asking like, well, are you saying that it's not or that it didn't or that it was? I'm not. We're not saying not. We're saying this is the picture's bigger, not smaller. It is significantly bigger. Um, I think having come from kind of a, a Calvinist Baptist background that that the reality of the cross was always too small. It was it was merely a torture device and a shape that we use to remember uh, the Lord's death and his crucifixion. In the Orthodox Church, it's like you just said, it is so much bigger. It it's it's a universal and eternal thing because God has God revealed it from the beginning of time in memoria in the scriptures we we see it we see it in moses we see it with jacob we see it throughout the old testament these prefigurings of one being held up on a cross we have these these prophecies of one being cursed on on a tree uh, you know and we we see that it was by a tree that we we lost life and that it's through the wood of the tree of the cross that life comes back into the world. And then furthermore, we see that the word of the cross, the message of the cross 
is how it is that God has saved humanity. We see in our in our progenitors, we see in Adam and Eve that they misunderstood how it was that they were going to ascend toward their calling, how it was that they were going to arrive at their calling to be perfect. We see that Satan tried to ascend the throne of God. And then we see Paul and in the in the Gospel of John saying that Christ first you know how how he ascended but he also had to descend so we see that humanity has to descend that the message of the cross that the message of the gospel is humility and repentance in order to attain unto divinity and god did it himself first to show us the way there, there's this beautiful capitulate in gathering of all the beauty of the gospel and all of salvation history in the cross well, and where it leads. So, like, it's interesting that when Jesus talks about, when Jesus talks about his own crucifixion, he says, you know, he, he gives them the sign of the, the serpent that was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. And what, what you have there, and this is something that I have found so difficult to streamline enough for a sermon. Um, one of the, you know, one of the big reasons for all of you listeners, one of the big reasons why you really should go to talks and uh and seminars and discussions and classes at your church with your priest is because the sermon as fun as it is is a it's a very it's a very limiting platform it's a it's a uh it's a very limiting genre you know you've got you've got this whole broad expanse of a congregation from preschoolers to senior citizens and you've got like 10 minutes to 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 make them understand some things and to to edify them on some things that really could take days like if you were you could take and and that's why like the key to a good sermon is like really not trying to cover too much ground you want to cover very little ground very well and this is one of those points that I've had a hard time streamlining into that, uh, into that scenario. It's easier to really give these top, broader topics um, the kind of play they deserve, the kind of fleshing out they deserve in like a seminar or a talk or, uh, you know, a discussion. So like, interestingly, when you go to Greece, if you go to the old world, if you go to Greece, like it's very common to see sermons not necessarily maybe given in the liturgy which are the, which are there where they're supposed to be given right they are supposed to but sometimes you'll see the priest giving you know a talk in the hall and there'll be all these people there and food and but then he talks for an hour you know but everyone's got they've got refreshments he, but he can really expand on stuff and so all of these talks and discussions by priests and, and clergy and bishops in the old world like they get a lot of coverage you get thousands of people listening. And, and, and that's kind of how St. John Chrysostom's sermons were. They weren't these quick little things. It was like, we're going to be here for a while. Um, and so, so like, this is one of those things, right? Where, so Christ gives the, talks about the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. And what's really happening there, the serpent has been the instrument of death, right? The serpent in, in, uh, in the camp, this is during the Exodus narratives, in the camp, the, the serpents are going around and they're biting people and they're dying. And God tells Moses, put one up on a, uh, on a pole and raise it up and whoever looks at it will be healed. So what do you have? You have an entering into the thing that is causing, entering into a confronting. That's the word I want. You have a confronting of the thing that causes your death. And by confronting it and going towards it, now you find life. So, you, But in order to get to life, You've got to come here and confront this death. You've got to come here and confront this monster. If you do that, you will live. If you don't do that, you will die. And that's the sign that Jesus picks. And so, like, you're, you're looking at that. And so, like, when we say, like, what is, what is, what are we saved from at the cross? As Orthodox Christians, we look and say that the, as Orthodox Christians, we look and say that, um, you have these illegitimate spiritual powers that have, through sin, taken hold of humanity, that have illegitimately taken the world under their sway. 
when the serpent is in the garden and God says, you'll crawl on your belly and eat dust. Well, I mean, that's language of the realm of death because people in the ancient world weren't stupid. They knew that snakes didn't eat dirt. They knew that they ate rodents. They saw that happen all the time. But you're eating dust. Well, where are you eating dust? In, in If you look at Babylonian mythology, which just would have been part and parcel, it's, 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 it's stuff that it's imagery that would have been out in the world in which they lived. Well, if you looked at that, the, uh, the thought was that in the realm of the dead, the dead ate dust. Eating dust was what you did in the realm of the dead. Um, and so the devil, he's like, that's part of, that's part of the serpent's punishment. You will eat dust. So where is, where is he, where, where is he, uh, where does he reside? Well, the realm of the dead. And that's why the apostle Paul in his epistle says, um, that Christ overthrew him who through fear of death held humanity under his tyranny, the one who had the power of death. That's, that's not Father Michael. That's the epistles of St. Paul. So St. Paul is setting this up where you have this illegitimate spiritual entity that is lording over humanity through the fear of death because he has the power of death. He is in the realm of the dead, which is what Genesis tells us with him eating dust. And Christ is going to go there. And that's his kingdom now, too. It's kind of like, it's kind of like he's showing up and saying, no, that's mine now. That's also mine. You get nothing. This is also my territory. It all belongs to me. And that's, that's what, that, that's why, you know, hence the psalmist says, where shall we go to flee from you? Should we make our bed in Sheol in the realm of the dead in hell? You are there. Like, yeah, this, everything belongs to Yahweh. Nothing doesn't belong to Yahweh. And so Christ that this is something I'll be restating into this weekend sermon that I've said in several sermons as a as a uh, as a note, and I'm just restating the line instead of the whole presentation. But um, Christ is not nailed to the cross; the cross is nailed to Christ. He is the one entering death and undoing death. The cross, the symbol of death, is nailed to him. The cross can't escape from him. The devil that is undone by his divine might can't escape from his grasp when it is nailed to him on the cross. Make no mistake, it's not something happening to Jesus. Jesus is happening to it. That's why when Peter tries to stop his arrest, he puts you know the slave's ear back on and says, no, I came for this hour. And that's why in our liturgy we say before going to his voluntary and ever memorable death. It is voluntary and deliberate. Jesus happens to the cross. So that death and the threat of death will be undone. It's not happening to him. He's happening to it, which causes me to really rethink kind of the imagery that we do backwards, especially in the Christian West, where we look at the sufferings of Christ. Christ is there undoing the devil. He's happening to it. And I think that's very important to understand what it does next. I think that's one of the powerful images seen in the type of of Christ and and the rod that Moses had that 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 death and suffering were in the world and that the people needed to turn to the Christ who who was happening in the world for the for them to be saved it's like listen my people listen to me Death and suffering have come into the world. They are tormenting you. Now you need to come and look death in the eyes and realize that you have no power over it whatsoever. And that the, and that the power over death is actually held in the humble Christ who put himself up on that cross. That, that the, the, the way of the cross, that the word of the cross is humility. It is repentance in the face of our own weakness. That, that, weak, that by weakness, strength is given because God shows us that all the time. That his ways are not our ways. And it does look like absolute foolishness to, to the, our philosophizing souls, to our souls that want to understand and, and, and to be in control, right? There's this, and, and I think this is a thing that Satan absolutely perverts in us to, to keep us dead. It's like when, when we try to ascend to the throne, 
when we try to ascend to God through our own devices, through our own pride, it, it isn't that it that these that these capacities that we have are illegitimate. It's that we're misusing them. It's natural for man to want to be with God. It's natural for man to have a high and reverent understanding of itself because we were created in the image of the Most High. It doesn't seem so illegitimate to my mind for a human being to think that we're something. But in order for us to be anything, we first have to be humbled. We have to first be brought down to the pit through the cross in order that Christ raise us up and offer to us that our true being is found through the descent first, then to be raised up not to raise ourselves up, because if we raise ourselves up first, then we are humbled. But we have to first be humbled to be given honor. We see this juxtaposition, these throws back and forth in the scriptures all the time, and Christ is leading the way through the cross. Well, yeah, I mean, hence, you know, hence you've got that line, you know, he he who humbles himself will be exalted, he who exalted himself will be humbled. The one who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. Um, you know, but the, but yeah, I mean, look at, you know, therein lies the illegitimacy of the devil's reign. Because when you look at Isaiah 14, he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will go to the, I will, I will climb the Mount of assembly and exalt my throne above the stars of heaven and, uh, be like the most high. Well, I mean, the Mount of Assembly, English speakers just pass that over. Harmoid, the Mount of Assembly, that's where God is. That's the holy mountain. That's where the divine council meets. That's, and you see that play out like in 1 Kings where God wants to undo, decides he's going to judge one of the unrighteous kings and he calls, he assembles the spirits around him and he, they offer solutions and he picks one and sends them to do it. Um, where Job, uh, in the book of Job, where it just says that all the sons of God, all the, the spiritual powers were assembled before the most high and gave an account. And the devil was there and says, I've been roaming across the earth to and fro. I mean, there, there's all the, and then of course there's Psalm 81, Septuagint 82, not Septuagint, uh, Western numbering where it, where God said where it says God stands in the midst of God the gods in the midst of the council of gods he passes judgment so the divine council is real it's all there in scripture and so when the so when when the devil says in Isaiah 14 I will I will climb the mount of assembly that's I'm going to go where God is I'm going into the assembly and I'm going to overthrow and set my throne. And now you have a problem, right? But look who's doing it. I'm doing it. I will. And, and then that's that's the temptation given to Eve in the garden. You can just take the fruits yourself on your terms. Um, we have a sense. There really is a sense if you're if you're if you are careful in how you read it, there's a real sense in Genesis that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil probably would not have been uh, off limits forever. Now that is that is commonplace uh, in Orthodox theology. It's commonplace. Say, oh yeah, eventually they would have been given it. But there's actually a scriptural reason to believe that. It's not just because the father said it. The father said it because there's a scriptural reason, and the scriptural reason is this: every other time the word knowledge of good and evil is used throughout Old and New Testament, it refers to maturity. It refers to a thing at its time of flowering, like when it is mature. I mean, even the prophecies about the Messiah, you know, they say before he, even the prophecies about the Messiah speaking, speak about, um, you know, him having wisdom before he has come to know good and evil, he will choose the good. Well, like, what does that mean? Well, it means maturity. In other words, before he has grown into, uh, you know, in his humanity anyway, uh, you know, an adult. So. Knowledge of good and evil means maturity. Knowledge of good, which it when 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 it comes to that, there's a time and a place for everything. There's a time and a place. So we you have this sense that God, because it's named that, probably w- there was going to be a time and place when they were done training and ready for this. Uh, but the devil uh, says you can do this on your own 
self-esteem and on your own terms and exalt yourself. And now you get the fall. Now you get a problem. So, um, so I, I think, you know, that there's that phrase in recovery, like life's on life's terms. I mean, eternal life on eternal or eternal life's terms. And, and the, the real, the real dissonance with the cross is that again, you're not doing this your way. And then that's, that's, that's where you get into the real difference between the humility of God, the humility of Christ in his genosis, in his self-emptying, in his taking on the form uh, of a servant versus the alternative, which is I will exalt myself. And so like, how do we, how do we, how, how else do you want to, how else do we flesh that out as far as, you know, what, what do we, so once he's humbled himself on the cross, I mean, what next? Because I think I, I, here's the thing. I, here's the way this plays out for our Western listeners. So often you've got this bad thing happens to Jesus. He dies, goes into the tomb and wakes up and the resurrection. Whereas Orthodoxy, it's a, it's, it's a little richer and fuller. So how, how, how would you, how would you like, what's next? Where does that humility lead? I think the humility is, I think, I think that we have to recognize first the humility of Christ in order to make anything of that. Because in that word, kenosis, that self-emptying, um, is, is implied the idea that God himself, in an undiminished way, became a human being. That God most high, without giving up any amount of divinity, humbled himself to become a human in order to do what? Descend. So he descended in order to descend. That he humbled himself in order to be ultimately humbled. The, 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 what is it? Akra Takpinosi, that word, that, that ultimate humility that, that, he, that he offered on behalf of humanity when, when the cross was nailed to him, to use your idea. That that we have to see in our Lord what he created us to be. I think, I think, the, I think that we have a false notion. Like uh, a few weeks ago, uh, what the gospel reading was of, of the wicked servant that owed his master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents at that time. One, I think if I remember right, one talent was like 20 years worth of work for a slave. So we're talking like 200,000 years worth of labor to pay the master back. This is an image of, of God saying, listen, I created you to do a thing. And, and that thing is to be like me. And then, then, you, then you juxtapose that to Satan and to, to our natural inclination to want to be like God right now and to short circuit everything and just be like God today without any sort of actually being like him. So he goes through all of this trouble to show us the actual way. And the actual way is humility. It is actually through suffering. It is actually through repentance. It's actually through humility. It's actually through a life lived bearing a cross that we become like him. And that's what I think for me this this week has the, the cross is, is offered. It's like a, a, a clearer, better understanding of what it is that we're called to do. You know, we think we think about God, we think big ideas, right? He's he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he's he's an originate, he he's he's all of these things. And we want, I think as human beings with so little power, we want to have all the power that we can garner. We want all the control that we can have and that, and that the cross forces us to focus more sharply. It brings to, to a point, listen, man, I didn't create you for all those things. I created you to be like me and I'm humble. Yeah. And I, I, so where I struggle is with our very poor and maybe, maybe it's my poor. Uh, with the poor conception of humility. Uh, because I, I think at least, 
my knee-jerk apprehension, probably most people's knee-jerk apprehension, or at least some people's, is going to you're you're tempted to see humility as kind of a downtroddenness and broken downness, and that's yeah not weakness right yeah kind of passivity yeah which is also not what you see in Christ yeah he humbled himself taking the form of a servant he also physically kicks a bunch of merchants out of the temple like he sits down the text says he sits down made a cord of whips and drove them out of the temple. That is so cleaned up because here's the deal. If you've ever done crowd control in the Middle East, and I have, um, you know that those people don't move for anything. Like, they don't move. I mean, you know, like they don't move for anything. Like one guy just brandishing a whip around, they're not going to leave for that. Like, and, and these are tough people. Middle Eastern, especially back then, you know, where, I mean, you know, life was, if you think life is nasty, brutish, and short now, it was way more brutal back then. So guess what? Like, if you, if, if someone besides Jesus did that, you're most likely to just get someone come up behind and knock the person out. Or if they're feeling kind, grab them and drag them out. The Middle East has a very strong wrestling culture. It's very likely that there were plenty of people in the crowd who knew how to grab another man and drag him out. And yet Jesus wins. Yet Jesus makes, and all these people have a financial investment in being there. And and you know how violent people can be when you get in between them and their money. So you got a bunch of people prone to violence, known to vi- know, who know how to be violent, who are tough as nails. And he walks in to a crowded room with a whip and wins. He casts them out. They are, I don't know what that scene was. We're not told, but from experience in the Middle East, I can tell you it must have been um, quite the violent spectacle. It, this, this, it, it, it must have, whatever happened, must have struck fear and terror into the heart of everyone who decided that whatever money they were making that day was not worth it. So, but that's the same guy who's humble. He's humble. Well, so what is he going to war on? Well, he's not going to war on his own behalf. He is zealous for his father's house. He, he's humble. He's fighting. He, he, he's, he is hurrying to execute justice for justice sake on behalf of another. Not for his own aggrandizement. That's perhaps where we can take a look there. Um, you know, and, and so as far as our own humility, I, I don't think humility means being a doormat because, I mean, you know, Jesus, you know, he walks around telling the Pharisees they're whitewashed tombs. Like, ask your parish council. Like, ask your parish council. Hey, if I, as your priest, started a meeting off with you whitewashed tombs and brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. You are, you are full of dead men's bones, all of you. Like the bishop would get called. And by the way, I realize I mixed John the Baptist's words with Jesus's words there. But really, like the bishop would get called and someone would say, you're not being very Christ-like. I just quoted him. I mean, like, again, he is humble. He's not a pushover. He's not a Jesus is not a doormat. We we did a we did a the the not buddy Jesus episode a few weeks back. Well, he's not doormat Jesus either. But the humility comes in that he is willing to go down to where those he is strong enough to save are. And I think that's where our humility comes in. If we are if we are being humble, if we're imitating the humility of God, then it really comes into place who who are we coming down to? Who are we meeting in their need versus sitting up on our Mount of Assembly, on our uh, ivory tower and saying, you come to me if you want anything. And that's, that, that's, that's really where the humility takes place. But I want to disavow us of doormat Jesus. Yeah, there is no such thing as doormat Jesus. Yeah, one second. Sorry.
there is no doormat Jesus, like you said. Um, I'm, I'm still reading St. Sophronius, His Life is Mine. And there, there's this great thing that he said, and I'll read it, so I'm quoting. The tragedy of creation came with the fall and continues in our perpetual instability. Prone to evil, we detest and fight evil. In our longing for the absolute good or God, we push him away and we resist him. Christ, having linked God and man inseparably in himself, is the one and only solution of the apparently insoluble conflict. He is in truth the savior of the world. He is the measure of all things, divine and human. He is the way to the Father. So I, I think we could say that maybe in a lot of ways, Jesus's humility is entirely unique to him. However, it takes humility for humanity to say that Christ is the way, that I cannot save myself, that, that the instability, the insecurities that I have in my life are, are, are mine and they are uniquely mine and that I have to trust him and offer those insecurities. I have to offer my sufferings. I have to offer those things that are uniquely mine to him in order to find peace and, and the life offered by the cross. So humility for us individually will probably look a lot different, but there has to be strength in that humility. It takes it takes strength of character and strength of soul to look into the abyss of your own suffering and say, there's nothing I can do about that, but God is the source of life and light, and I have to trust him. I have to trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that it was by his cross that he has shown, shown us how to do that. That I have to first go down into hell, right? right? It was St. Silouan that said, uh, live, live like you're in hell, but do not despair. Right, but place your, your mind in hell. Your mind place in your mind hell in hell and do not despair. Not. He also said, "Stand at the brink of despair, and when you feel you cannot bear it any longer, take a step back and have a cup of tea." Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I, yeah, I, I've, I, I found those so hard to really unpack. But yeah, go on. There's a humility in that. I think. I think that there's a humility in that because it it walks that that line of recognition that that the that the life that I live that all of my insecurities my sins uh, the fact that I'm human have one end and that's death it's 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 opposition to God and the consequence of that but that Christ through His Humility that him through the word of his cross has made a better living way. That that he being God descended down into Hades and that he took all of creation in into into his hand and then ascended, and that he he led all the captives, he set all the captives free, and that he can set you free too. If you will bow your knee uh, to Him, the Most High God, right? you know. So, I think there's, a, I think for us, there's a humility in that, in that recognition that He's God, and that, and that we need to bow to Him and offer Him due worship and praise. Well, I mean, so like to go back to like our original motif on on talking about this, because I, I agree with you, and I, I don't want it to. I think I feel like we're we're both throwing ideas out there, but to to, to tie it together to what we're talking about originally on this um you know when we're looking at jesus basically invading and conquering you know the the devil's last stronghold death itself and saying no that's my territory too but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that um you know the word gospel because it says in in the epistle that i think you mentioned where where the epistle says uh what does it mean that he ascended except that he first dis descended and took captivity captive, giving gifts to men. Well, okay, so that right there, you've got in the New Testament idea, he, okay, he's dead, death and, and hell, the realm of the dead is captivity, and he's taking that captive. So that means, okay, even that's ours, even that's his. And, but then what does it mean to give gifts to men? I mean, to, to preach the gospel to those 
who are in the realm of the dead. Well, again, the the word gospel it, it doesn't just mean like the story about Jesus, right? It's it's it, the word evangelia or the gospel. It, uh, originally, before before the term God applied to, uh, before the term God applied to the story about Jesus Christ, it, it was that is a word that was used way before the writing of the Gospels. The Gospel originally, the word Evangelia, referred to the announcement of military victory. Uh, the Ev, as our dear Father Nick Triandafilu is fond of pointing out sort of like when you've got the ev at the beginning of Greek words, it doesn't just mean good, it means best, it's superlative. So evangelia isn't just a good announcing or good news, it's the best news, it's the best news. And why would a military victory be the best news? I mean, for us here in North America who like, you know, okay, there's a war over there in Afghanistan or a war over there in Vietnam or in, in Korea, it's on the other side of the world. like. Whether we won or not, everybody still goes to the mall. Uh, however, in the ancient world, that's not the way war worked. It didn't happen somewhere else. It happened to you. And if you lost, if your side lost, the enemy would come through your city, burn everything. Uh, the people who die are the lucky ones. The rest get sold into slavery or tortured. And let's not talk about the horrors that waited any women or girls that survived. Let's be honest, that is the face of ancient warfare. Like it, it's everything that we would consider war crimes was just the way war was done. Your city is going to get burned. You, your, your, your men and sons will be lucky if they die. Uh, if they're not lucky, they will be slaves. And your, the ladies are in for a terrible fate. And any holy place you have is going to be desecrated. So imagine the battle is happening and those are the stakes. Those are the stakes. You're going to sleep tonight and the stakes are when you wake up, there is either a barbarian burning your house down and taking your kids or you won. Or you won. Those are the stakes in ancient war. So with that in mind, the Evangelia, the proclamation of victory, was indeed the best possible news. Because if that's what you're worried about happening to you, the fact that it's not going to happen to you is the best news you could possibly receive. There's not better news than that. And that's the word that gets used for the gospel, the Evangelia. This is the best news. That captivity itself, that the devil itself is undone, that hell now belongs to Yahweh. Everything. Everything. In heaven and on earth, in the realm unseen and seen, these illegitimate spiritual forces are undone and judged. And if we are in his, and if we are in his army and his host, we can walk through with the same confidence that he does because we're with him. Epicranthi. Yeah. It was embittered. Yeah. That's, but not us. It was that, That's why I say that Jesus happened to the cross, not the cross to Jesus. That, that's, but that, but that's that's the thing. So, like to go back to that, like to go back to that, like you know. To, so for him to, for him to to preach to these people, like, hey, the war's over, we've won, best possible news has arrived. Uh, you know, that's. But that's that's the height of humility. It's like I'm going down even to where you are and searching out for this lost sheep, even all the way down here. There was no place that anyone could hide at that point. Hey, did you catch? So I saw in one of the Vesperal hymns that the hymnographer said, Oplon Akatamahiton. It's always translated like an invincible standard talking about the cross. But it's like, it's it the cross because Christ happened to it now becomes as something that it is itself unable to be conquered because yeah. it was it was the thing by which the the embitterment happened that the that the butt kicking ensued it was like he Jesus didn't need a sword Jesus didn't take a sword into the battle 
he came empty-handed and put a cross on his back. And then he went down and kicked the gates of hell down and took the captives captive. Well, I mean, that's the way the that's the way David charmed the Lord mighty in battle, the Lord mighty in war. And actually show like the, the line you're thinking about, Oplo Redinis. So the Oplo Redinis, and there's another one in the Troparion of the Cross. You're, there's, there's that hymn, the one you're quoting. There's another one that Oplo Redinis, Aititon Tropeon. And Oplon there usually gets rendered as weapon, a weapon of peace and an invincible standard. But so the 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 Oplos, it also gets right, that's also your shield, but it also gets termed it also gets used as a general term for a weapon. In general. Like it's so it's got a specific use in its general use. And so like even in modern Greek today, like you still call a weapon opla, you know, a weapon. Uh, and it's you might be talking about a rifle. But um, it's definitely the armor, but the idea is, but well, what does it mean? What does it mean for the cross to be oplonidinus, for it to be a weapon of peace? Well, I mean, what is peace? Christ, Christ says, I came not to bring, I give you peace, not as the world gives it. Do I give you peace? So the world would give you peace as uh, this tenuous lack of conflict and don't rock the boat and just do what you're told. I'm like that's peace because there's no, there's no trouble, no conflict. But there's also no justice in that because things that need to be confronted are never confronted. Things that need to be made right are never made right. It's really quite stifling, actually. Uh, so like when you see people, well, one of the things, if you see people in very dysfunctional, toxic family systems, that'll actually, there can actually be very toxic families, uh, psychologically speaking, where there's a lack of conflict. It's not that there's too much conflict. It's that no one will confront anything. And that's worse, actually, because nothing gets fixed. So peace, from the perspective of Yahweh, is setting things right according to how he intended them in the first place, which, because he is the ultimate good itself, it means they will be in their best possible good state. These, the proper relationship between all of these things, the proper spider web of relationship between all things is restored. And there's nothing to throw it off. There's nothing to throw it off kilter again. So peace from the perspective of scripture is we can be in communion with God and there's no threat to that being thrown out of whack. You know, we can enter into the temple without having to worry about um you know, without having to worry about, uh, am I still ritually pure? You know, because there's that would throw it off whack and you can't go in. Well, now there's nothing to throw it off whack. There's nothing to separate us. Nothing is getting in the way. And that's peace. Um, so, yeah. So when the cross gets called Oplodininis in the hymns, you know, the weapon of peace. It's like, well, yeah. So that because there's nothing that can overcome this. We're, we, 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 you know, we have this unity and even death is filled with him now. So again, all the, that harmony or the potential for it uh, is back on the menu. As human beings, we have the tendency not to leave it there. So Oplon, when it, in that context, when it was translated, the Oplon Akatamahiton, right? So Akatamahiton is... A good translation of that is actually unassailable, something that cannot that they cannot conquer. But one of the translations I saw actually translated Oplon as panoply in that context, which is a full array of armor. So the cross is a fully arrayed set of armor that cannot be assailed. So it's like you, then you could also draw the conclusion, I think, very loosely. I, I will admit that. Uh, that that the cross is like the love of God. God's love cannot be assailed because it covers a multitude of sins. And death and sin were completely... It's like Christ, through the cross, put up a, a space shield, right? In like some sci-fi movie. Like he put the... He put the from space balls, he put the air shield up. <laughs> that now Satan cannot conquer it. It's, it is because Christ took the cross, it, his life is unassailable. What he offers to us cannot, it, Satan's, arm is, was, Satan's arm was too short in the first place. 
and now he has no arms. Flesh wound. So to, <laughs> yeah, so to jump on your your sci-fi reference, um, like so, uh, like one of my favorite sci-fi properties is the uh, is Frank Herbert's Dune, which is uh, rarely done well on screen, but they've got a new one coming out that I think looks very promising. Anyway, uh, it, it's a it's a fascinating story, but one of the interesting things. So they develop these uh, they develop this personal armor, personal force field armor. So like the, they'll have these little shields, force shields, and it'll be on, it'll be either on a wrist or a belt and they can hit it and it'll cover either part or hold the body. And what's interesting, so the chink in the armor is that they only work if you're moving fast. So if someone is trying to attack quickly, it'll repel. So like if you get shot at, the bullet's moving fast, it's going to get propelled. But something that's moving very slow and deliberate can get through it. So there's this whole type of, this whole style of knife fighting that develops in the Dune book where once the shields hit, everything, the, the, the fighters deliberately move super slow and get through until they can speed up again on the, and they're on the other side. Um, and so like in looking at that, like, but look at look at the look at the the humility that it takes to move slow. I don't get to go at my pace. I don't get to go at my pace on my terms and the way I want to go. Because if I do, I'm out. Like we're done. We're 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 bounced out. And you know, again, that is once again the the battle cry of, of Jesus all around the cross. You know, we're not. No one's doing this on their own terms. I mean, yes, he's going towards it deliberately. But I came not to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Like we're like there, there's even, even, even though I'm deliberately going to do the will of the father who sent me, I'm doing, I'm serving and it's not myself. You know, there, there's nothing that Christ needs out of hell when he conquers it. He doesn't need anything except that he loves us and the people he loves are down there. And so that's where he's going, you know. It, it, that I, it, every time people ask things about God and it starts it's with why does God have to or why does God need God doesn't have to or need anything no thing if I if I drank if I do I require if I drank the blood of goats or bulls would I tell you he says in the Psalms like I, I have no need but even in he's giving a that's the blueprint for the Christian life cycle like, oh, even in going you're, yes you're going deliberately Yes, you're going voluntarily, but you're also not going with your own plan and on your own terms. You are serving, and it's not about you. I think it's a big danger for us as priests because um, it's hard to do ministry without a whole lot of your own plans and schemes getting in there. Um, you know, you you've got the next big idea for uh, for ministry, for a group, for something the parish ought to do, for a direction you believe the parish should go in. And, or an activity like, you know, maybe you think that, you know, the college kids should go to like Tanzania with OCMC or whatever, which would be a great thing to do. Um, and, and it's, it's, I don't, other than by the grace of God, I don't think it's possible to fully divorce your own kind of preferences and agenda from that. But nevertheless, you have to drive forward. And that's where repentance kicks in. It's like, okay, um, you know, Christ, my, you know, my, my offering is not perfect, but I'm offering it. Make up what lacks, you know. You know, I, 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 I have to paraphrase the dad from the gospel. You know, uh, I have humility, but help my lack of humility, because we've still got to get stuff done. Like if we just wait till we're perfectly humble, nothing will ever happen. Um, you know, the guy, the the man who hid the one talent. Remember, the the the, the three servants were given talents and. One of them buried it and hid it and gave it back and said, here, take what is yours. I kept it safe. He's punished. You're expected to get things done. I mean, you could say from the way we look at humility in our day and age, he was so humble. He was perfectly humble. He was so meek. He, he didn't, he'd had no pretensions about who he was, no plans, no devices, no agenda of his own. And he failed. 
So what does it tell you? It tells you that the way we're assessing humility might not be on the mark. Maybe not. I think that the what you said just a few minutes, moments ago about that that it requires movement and that it requires understanding that we're we're on the march and that our that our orders are not from us and that and that we have to be cool with that basically. I, I think that really hits hits to the point of of the cross and understanding that it's by tapping into God through prayer that like the fathers so frequently said that that anything true, whether it be religion, uh, philosophy, theology, any, anything true can only be found in prayer because that, that is the relationship that we can form in Christ through the power of the spirit, all of which was activated because of the Holy cross. And that it's in that place of self recognizing that I, that I have an opportunity to commune with God, and then to do his works in this world, that that, that kind of joining of, of the divine with with the finite is is begun to be perfected. That I can only please my father if I'm in communion in my, with my father and figuring out what he wants me to do. That and and that and that whole that whole reality that we're called to participate in is activated by by the Holy Cross. It's like, I mean, because the incarnation led to the cross and the cross led to the ascension and Pentecost and to everything eschatological that, that we look forward to is like that it, for us in bound by time, the cross is like the zero point on, on the graph. It's like, it's a, it was that point to which everything looked forward to and from which everything moving forward to looks back to. And it, and it activates human capacity. It activates the God's image in you. It activates everything. We're actually able to become what we were created to be because of Christ's amazing sacrifice on that torture device to use an illusion. Is that the right word? Sorry. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's the... The hum yeah, and, that, and that's the the humility of it. I mean, you know, step where where what you were saying reminded me that, you know, step eleven, for example, in the the twelve steps of recovery is, um, we we sought through prayer and meditation to establish a closer contact with God, and to and prayed only to know His will and for the power to carry it out. So I mean, like most of our prayers. In reality, are about getting him to do what I want, which is the fundamental tenet of idolatry. Whereas, you know, even there, they're like saying, "What is your, what is the will of the Father?" And I need the power to carry it out. Uh, so again, you know, once you get serious about spiritual things, humility is everywhere. And I can't think of a better way to wrap up. So, Father, uh, I humbly thank you for recording today. And for doing all the uh, all the tech work that you do, so thank you so much. And God's grace. Everybody, do check us out on Anchor FM, uh, on Anchor FM, and over with shares, of course, like I said, over Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and uh, over social media on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook, as well as. Uh, the OTB shorts on YouTube and Rumble. Cool. Uh, that was a little anticlimactic. Do you have a, Do you have any final thoughts to to, to insert back in there? Uh, <laughs> anticlimactic, may, maybe a little bit. Uh, I was thinking about a, a class I remember with uh, Father Eugene, and he said, "God is not a divine Coke machine waiting for you to put quarters into." You know, I remember the first time I heard a priest say that it was he would say he's like we expect to get our put our little faith quarters in and get our can of salvation pop. He's like that's not what that's not God. That's a that's a genie. That's not even a good genie. It's a bad genie because he gives yeah. you the, yeah. I mean, because well, you have to pay for it. You don't just have to rub the the, the lantern and I mean, and what kind of God? I, yeah, it's just kind of vain. However. um, I, when you were talking about that, I thought of the prayers in the liturgy that we say that grant them their prayers that are unto salvation. 
better prayer. And I think, yeah, and I think our problem is like we we don't necessarily see what is unto salvation, what isn't, and um, we don't necessarily see what is and what isn't, and we don't necessarily like the way that what is shapes up. We we really want things on our terms, and just it's it doesn't necessarily go that way. And the thing is, God is supremely unconcerned with a lot of stuff that we're really stuck on. Like he wants our salvation. He like, like if you're asking, like, so people like, what does God want me to do with my life? Well, which one of these ways of life are you more likely to live as a faithful Orthodox Christian in? Uh, that's what he wants you to do. So, you know, so it's not just like, it, so yeah, so it's like what he's concerned about is which road gets you to him? Which road gets you closest to him the best and quickest? Uh, we and we're really concerned about all the details. Like I, I, I really want to really, I really need your help with this new flooring in my kitchen. He doesn't care. He wants. He's like, well, is that going to contribute to your salvation somewhere? No, you know. I mean, yes, maybe. Uh, I mean, I don't know, right? Like now, here's the other thing, right? So where could something mundane like that contribute to your salvation? Well, the flooring might be the non-issue, but if I grant, if he grants you the grace to put in that flooring with your wife, uh, it, with a like with better patience and kind of a kinder, more generous spirit, like you're actually you're not all frazzled and stressed out. You're putting in the work kindly and patiently, and you're building this home together, and maybe. Uh, you, you know, your son helps you out and that's the first time he's voluntarily helped out at home in ages and you guys really bond a little, all of that could be towards salvation. So does God care about the flooring? Yes and no, not the flooring for the flooring sake, not flooring qua flooring, but look at all of those salvific things that we could bring together around the floor. The way I'm helping my wife out, the way that my, my son is, and I are bonding or that he's taking responsibility, contributing to the household. And a family that's doing that is a family that's more likely to pray. And it certainly does look more like what the gospel points towards. So it's not that God is unconcerned about our lives. It's just he's coming at it from a different angle. You're thinking about the tiles. He's thinking about how can I get this to look salvific. So again, it doesn't mean he doesn't care about the floor, but the floor is not the point to him. So I, I think... Closing it up for me, um, for myself, and I'm not. And if anyone listening does it with me, glory to God. But moving out of this conversation and, and into the into the day and the coming days, I'm really focused on trying to understand the word of the cross better. And and in the context of what we've spoken about for the past hour trying to understand more clearly what Jesus meant by take up your cross daily. What, what does that look like? It's like, how does Jesus's cross look like my cross? And what was it that he did with his cross that he's asking me to do? And, and then by doing that, what is he offering me? And we know what he's offering us. He, he is literally offering us his life. That, that he's offering us a, a means of being taken out of death and participating in eternal life. So we know what, it's like if you take up your cross daily and follow him, that at the end of that road of suffering and death, that there will be genuine and true life. But what is that going to look like every day? How am I to bring Christ into the world through the Holy Spirit? By means of me taking that device of suffering, like happening to me, happening to my own cross, what is that going to look like every day? Not sure yet, but I'm sure you're going to be thinking about it. Yeah, I, I like that. Like, yeah, if, if we're if we're imaging Christ, then yeah, then the crosses in our life, quote unquote, we're happening to them. Like Christ in us is happening to them. So how does that become the means of tra uh, of transformation in the world around us? So like, you know, you're, you know, so the, the next conflict you have around the dinner table and you're bearing this cross that, you know, we go every, every night we're fighting about something or, you know, whatever. Well, guess what? That, that's, that might be the place that might be the means by which, 
Christ in you overcomes this discord that has sadly illegitimately taken root. Uh, you know, that's, again, see, it's humble, but it's definitely not doormat. It's active. It's not passive. All right, good. Well, good. Well, all of you go out go out and happen to your crosses before they happen to you. That's right. Happen to your cross on the battlefield. Be strong, be diligent, be vigilant until we see you again. Keep fighting the good fight.